We'll turn back again this morning to Matthew 13. We're going to try to finish the sermon that we began last time. We're looking at the hidden treasure and the priceless pearl. Our text is Matthew 13, 44 through 46. So if you would find that in your Bible, let's read it together. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Our Lord Jesus is the speaker. He is teaching about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, according to verse 11 of this chapter. He is a king. And when he came, he came as a king. But the kingdom that he brought was not the kind of kingdom they expected. He didn't start an earthly, physical kingdom. But he began to rule in the hearts of people. And he rules today in our hearts. He rules in the hearts of those who are born of the Spirit, those who are born again. One day he will come back and he will set up a physical, earthly kingdom. And we read about it in the prophets where all the nations will flow into Jerusalem and they shall bring gifts to the king. He will make his enemies lick the dust, it says. They will bow down before him. They will come to hear the word of the Lord at his mouth. He will inherit the kingdom promised to David. In 2 Samuel 7, where David's descendant would rule forever. That'll be not Solomon, and not Rehoboam or Jeroboam, and not any of the other kings that succeeded. But that was kind of put on hold until Jesus comes the second time. And he will rule as David's descendant, as king of kings and lord of lords. But he came, and he is a king, and he set up a kingdom, but it was unlike the kingdom they expected. He didn't overthrow Rome and throw off the yoke of the Roman emperor and the Roman system. He came and he overthrew a worse enemy than the emperor. He overthrew Satan. And he overthrew sin that held us by the throat. He came the first time to suffer and then he went back to the Father. And he'll come the second time to rule and reign over an earthly physical kingdom. So he's speaking about those Years between that first and second coming here in the mystery form of the kingdom of heaven. And I say all that just to kind of whet your appetite, I hope, to make you dig a little bit in Matthew chapter 13 and try to draw out some of the things that are there. He tells seven parables in Matthew 13 to illustrate the nature of the kingdom. There will be not instantaneous revolution where the Romans are overthrown, but they'll be like a mustard seed planted. It's the smallest of seeds, but it will take root and it will grow into this huge plant and the birds of the air will find refuge in it. It'll be like a little bit of leaven that a woman puts in a lump of dough and it'll permeate and it'll permeate and it'll spread. It's small and insignificant, but it is invincible. It will affect a whole lump of dough. Jesus says, that's how it is now. I will come. I came And I came as a baby, and I didn't overthrow the political establishment. I came to deal with a greater enemy than Caesar. I came to deal with Satan. So let's think now about this mystery form of the kingdom, this interim period between Jesus' first and second coming. We'll come today to the Lord's table in a minute. We'll talk about the pinnacle of what he accomplished at his first coming. What did he do? What was the high water mark. What was the main work that the Lord Jesus did at his first coming? He died as a sin bearer. He took your sin and mine on his shoulders. He was crushed and bruised 
And by his stripes we are healed. And then he ascended from the dead. And rose from the dead ascended back to the Father. And at the Father's right hand, he is holding his people fast. He is interceding for us. He is building his church. He is calling from every tongue, tribe, nation, a, a people to himself. And one day he will come back and we will see him in the clouds. And what a day that will be. And our hopes will be fulfilled not until then, but on that day they will be. Until then we hope, we yearn, we wait, we cry, we praise God, we seek God, we dig in his word, we try to encourage one another, but it's always going to be unmet hopes until Jesus comes. Because nobody can fulfill the the desire of our heart, only he can and he will. And we wait. And we wait in hope. Now let's read our text. Matthew 13, 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. The which when a man hath found, he hideth and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The three points we're trying to cover, and I hope we can cover the other two today. The one we covered last time was this treasure is hidden from most people. It was hidden in an open field. They would walk right through the field, perhaps right over the treasure, perhaps, and not even see it. Jesus is that treasure, beloved. To some, he's, a, he's nothing. He's a Jewish man. Way back in distant history, got to blow off the dust to read about Jesus. He's way back there and he has no bearing on us at all. He's just some distant historical figure. That's all they see in Jesus. But the dust is not on Jesus. The dust is in our eyes that we don't see. Amen. Look a little deeper. Look a little harder. Look a little longer. Look humbly. Look below the surface. Yes, he was just a Jewish man. There was no beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah said. But oh, who is he? He's the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's the eternal son of an eternal father who's always existed from all eternity. He came into this world and he took our nature, our nature upon himself that he might take our sins upon himself. He looked like a normal Jewish man, and yet one time on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says his face began to shine like the sun. There was a little bit of a breakthrough of his glory. And there's Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, and his face was brighter than the sun. And then it went away. He hid it. He covered it back up. And they would spit on him, and they would curse him, and they would mock him and blaspheme his name and strip him of his clothes. He was nothing to most people. He was hidden from their eyes. And it's only today that we sit here in this house of worship. The only reason is because God has opened our eyes. He's given us eyes to see and ears to hear. So that Jesus is no longer just some figure way back in distant history. He is the living Lord who has called us. And we heard his call and we came. His light shined, shined on our path. And our world was turned upside down and then right side up. Things finally were put in place. 
hidden from most, number one. Number two, he's hidden from most, but he's more valuable than all. And then the third point, I trust we'll get to it. A radical commitment had to be made. He gathered all that he had, and he went and bought that field. He took all that he had and went and bought that pearl. He couldn't let it slip by as if it was unimportant. He did radical things. So let's talk about number two and three today. This hidden treasure, this priceless pearl, this costly pearl that's hidden from most is more valuable than all. The song says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather have Jesus than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. He is more valuable than all. For what does he bring to us? What does he give us? Does he give us a good day? We say, have a blessed day. Have a good day. Jesus gives us a good eternity. He doesn't just give us a good day. He doesn't give us a little pep talk, a little fortune cookie saying, so we can say, I'm going to think positively today and have a, have, a, have a nice day. No. He brings us a nice, nice is too weak. He brings us a glorious eternity. He gives us an eternal salvation. This is what Jesus brings. He gives us a salvation that started in eternity past and will go all the way to eternity future. He brings a salvation that is so full it covers our past, our present, and our future. It covers the penalty of sin in justification. It overthrows the power of sin that's still in us in sanctification. One day we will experience that final phase of salvation called glorification, where will we forever be delivered from the very presence of sin. Justification, sanctification, glorification, past, present, future. The salvation that Jesus brings is so rich and so full that the writers of Scripture, the apostles, has to speak of it in three phases and three steps and three installments, as it were. He is more valuable than all, beloved. He is more valuable than all. He has, according to Hebrews 9, 12, entered into a holy place, not the made-with-hands kind of place, but a place that is the true tabernacle. And he didn't go in with the blood of goats and calves. He went in with his own blood into that holy place. And he didn't offer an annual atonement that would have to be repeated next year and then again next year and then again next year. He offered for us and once and for all eternal atonement that would last forever for all who would come to him. He obtained, Hebrews 9, 12, an eternal redemption for us. He obtained it. He secured it. He didn't die and make salvation possible He died and secured the salvation of his people. He didn't do his work and then we got to come along and throw our few little shillings on top of it to make it valuable. His work was sufficient, complete, and it secured the salvation of his bride, his sheep. And he obtained eternal redemption for us, Hebrews 9, 12 says. Not annual atonement, but eternal redemption. This is 
how valuable our Lord Jesus is. For you who trust in Christ today, you will never be condemned. You will stand before your maker one day and the father will look at you and say, I see my son's beauty in you. Enter the joy of the Lord. And we might be tempted to say, but Lord, and he'll say, there are no fine prints in my covenant with you. Come on in, my loved adopted child. I see the beauty of my son on you. His righteousness has been given to you. You are without stain and without flaw and without fault. And I know even as I say those words, Satan is reminding you. Yeah, but I've got this thing still going on in my life and I still struggle with that sin. Just this week, I, whatever. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And Satan does not want you to stand firm and joyfully in Christ. Satan wants you to struggle for the rest of your lives with the certainty of salvation. Well, you're not really a Christian. If you was really a Christian, you wouldn't do this, and you wouldn't think that, and you wouldn't say that. The question I ask for you that will settle all other questions is, who is Jesus to you? Is he valuable to you? Is your confidence fully in him? If so, you can say, it is well with my soul. You may not have a lot of answers to a lot of other questions, but let me ask again, who is Jesus to you? Is he precious to you? Is he a treasure to you? Is he more valuable to you than anything else? If so, you are granted this wonderful blessing of having biblical assurance of salvation. If you can answer, Jesus Christ is to me the rock of my soul, the rock of my salvation. I do not trust in me. I do not have confidence that I can figure this out and work it out. I see what I have done. I'm not the answer to my problems. I'm the problem. The answer is outside of me. It's not in me. It's outside of me. It's even in the beautiful person of Christ. He is more valuable than all. When we get him, we get the whole triune God. Jesus' father becomes our father. The same spirit that anointed Jesus and made him the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, is the spirit that we partake of. The spirit that seals us until the day of redemption. Jesus doesn't come in order so we can, you know, he's not a means to an end. He's the end. We don't use Jesus to get things. We get Jesus and we get all that we could ever desire. We get the whole triune God. We get a father and we get an elder brother who is our representative at the father's right hand and we get the blessed Holy Spirit. We don't leverage Jesus so that we can get riches and money and fame and success in this world. We don't use him as if he's a means to other ends. He is the end. He is all and in all. Colossians 3, 11 says, and we are complete in him. Colossians 2, 10 says, he's more valuable than all. I trust your heart is saying amen to that. We read in Hebrews 11 that Moses was found by the riverside in a little basket by Pharaoh's daughter. And she brought him back when his little baby voice cried out. Her heart was moved and touched with compassion. And he cried right at the right time. She was right there at the right time. And she reaches into the river and she takes him back to Pharaoh's house. And Moses' sister is standing nearby. And she says, would you like for me to call somebody to nurse this baby for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says, sure. And so she goes and gets Moses, his mother. 
And Moses' mother nurses little Moses, and he does it, or she does it, while Pharaoh's daughter pays her to do it. Yeah, go take this baby and nurse him, and I'll pay you. So God spared Moses, and God had everything lined up just like the teeth and gears. God's providence is thorough, beloved. Still is today for you and me. You say, well, I see how God worked with Moses like that, but here's my life. It's just, no, beloved, that's not true. God is this God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always good and faithful and working on the good, toward the good end for his people. And so Moses grows up an Egyptian. He's spared from Pharaoh's death sentence, kill all the male babies. No, Moses will not be killed. God will spare him. He will grow up. He will go out and see how his people are treated. They're treated cruelly and harshly. And it says Moses came to a time in his life when he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Now, at the time of Moses, Egypt was the world power. There were treasures in Egypt like you and I can't even imagine. Moses could have had all that and, and overseen it. He could have been the heir to all of it. Instead, he cast his lot in with the despised people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. Because he knew that God had made promises to Jacob's descendants. And from Jacob's sons would come a Messiah. And Moses says, I will choose to suffer with them rather than enjoy these treasures. So what he basically did was he says, I'll take this treasure over this treasure. He saw by faith something you can't see with the peepers. He saw something by faith that you can't see with the natural eye. Egypt or the despised people of Israel? Well, that's an obvious choice. Everybody's going to go with Egypt, right? Unless you're walking by faith. Unless you see some things like the promises of God and the future of Israel. And the Messiah that's going to come from Israel. And it says Moses chose the reproach of Christ. And he esteemed that. He valued and reckoned that to be greater than the treasures in Egypt. And so he was able to forsake Egypt and didn't fear Pharaoh. And he went in and stood before Pharaoh. And he said, let the people go. And we're going to serve God. And Pharaoh laughed and mocked. And yet God had the last laugh, didn't he? I'm trying to say that this kingdom that Jesus speaks of, this treasure hidden in a field, this pearl that is exceedingly more valuable than all pearls, this is Christ. This is the one who is more valuable than all. This is the one who secures our soul's salvation. There's a lot of questions and answers and truths taught in the scriptures, but the, the main question is this, and it's the most important question. The main question that the Bible asks and then answers for us is how, well, who is God and how can man be right with him? Who is he and how can man, his fallen creatures, be right with him? Is it possible to be right with him? And our Lord Jesus Christ and no other, amen, and none less takes the fallen, ruined sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, takes us by the hand 
brings us right back to the Father and joins our hands to the Father's hand. He is the mediator. He is the one mediator between God and men. He accomplishes in his life, in his suffering, in his rising, in his intercession, he accomplishes for us what no other one could do. He is more valuable than all. That's what Moses thought. That's what Paul thought. Philippians chapter 3, the apostle Paul said, I've left this memory verse in the bulletin for two weeks now. It wasn't an oversight. It was uh, deliberate. Philippians 3, 7, and 8 are the verses I wanted you to memorize. Philippians 3, 7, Paul says, But what things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And so Paul says, I used to be a boaster. I used to boast in what I was. I was a true Hebrew. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was zealous for the law. I was a Pharisee. Concerning the law, the righteousness in the law, I was blameless. Now, that was Paul's view of himself. And you can be sure that any time a man thinks himself blameless before God, he hadn't seen himself yet. But Paul was a stickler for Pharisaic righteousness. All that the law said, he thought he did it. He would check off this box and that one and the other. I've done that. I've done that. Circumcised. Keep the Sabbath. Persecute false teachers. They deserve to be hounded. I'm going to be zealous for God and stamp out this new thing called Christianity. Paul was zealous. He was a self-righteous, proud, lost legalist. He had an external righteousness. He was blameless in his own eyes. But he says down in verse 9 that I read to you, I count all those things that I used to boast in, that I thought were assets, I see them now as, as liabilities. These were not things I should be boasting. In fact, he says, I count them now as dung, manure, refuse, waste, excrement, to be tossed out as worthless and detestable as it is. Paul wasn't talking about his drunkenness. He doesn't say that drunkenness was going to send me to hell, and so I cast that out as dung. He says, my virtues that I thought were my strong points, I see now to be utterly worthless and to be cast out as detestable and now I see one thing compared with the surpassing value of knowing Jesus everything else is worthless do you see the point this treasure is more valuable than all Paul thought that as well Philippians 3 4 through 9 
And so what kind of radical commitment must be made, number three? This treasure that's been hidden, and yet here we are today, granted by his grace to find it. And yet in reality, we did not find him. He found us, didn't he? We were walking along in a field, stumbling along perhaps, maybe diligent trying to make a living. And lo and behold, we stumble on a treasure. The stumblers. But here's a second man. He's, he's seeking something. He's seeking a, a pearl that he's only imagined exists. He goes to every market, every bazaar. He hears about this man over in this next town. He has come into possession of some treasures of the sea. And he says, honey, I'll be back next week. I'm going over here. I've got to find out if it's true. I've heard that he has a, something I've been desiring, seeking. And he's looking for a pearl. He's looking for beautiful pearls. And somehow, in some place, at some time, he sees a pearl that makes his eyes sparkle. It is this pearl that he cannot begin to fathom the beauty and the magnificence of this pearl. And he says, Whatever it takes, I will have that pearl. I don't care what it costs. Doesn't matter. Sorry, I didn't Siri. Could you please? I thought I had that cut down. I believe Siri is Satan. And so he must have this pearl. What will he do to get it? Will he gather everything he's got? And buy that field and buy that pearl. He will make a radical commitment. You say, well, hold on a minute. Are you saying that we buy salvation? Do we buy Jesus? How does that work? Isn't that false teaching? Well, he's not saying you take money and you exchange money with someone and you get Jesus. The way you buy this treasure is you buy it with repentance and faith. You buy it with humility. You humble yourself and you trust in the exceeding value of this one who is the Lord Jesus Christ. You make him your own. You gain possession of this treasure, this pearl. That's how you buy it. You buy it the same way as Isaiah 55, 1 says. You come without money. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth come to the waters, and he that hath no money come. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. How can you buy without money? Well, you come like this. You come with the empty hands of repentance and faith and the gracious God of heaven puts into your hands those hands of repentance and faith, those hands of humility and trust a treasure. But they got to be empty. If you got a few coins that you think is going to impress him, you say, I got a pocket full of good stuff here. I'm I'm, I'm a sinner, yes, but I'm a pretty decent sinner. I got a few good things I know God will be impressed with. I'm going to come to the bargaining table with him, and he'll say this, and I'll say this, and we'll work it out, and, and I'll throw my little worth on the table. You have nothing, beloved, to bring that will impress God. Morality will keep you out of jail, but it will not keep you out of hell. Being a good neighbor, working hard at your job, paying your taxes, obeying the laws of the land is a good thing to do as we live amongst one another, but it will not gain us a right standing with the God of heaven who is a holy 
and just God who sees our secret sins. There is none righteous, no, not not one, not even one. Search the whole world. You won't even find one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even in the good things that we do. You say, I gave some money to a guy on the street. It was a good thing, right? Even the good things that we do are not done for the glory of God. They're often done for the glory of ourselves. And so even in our benevolence, even in our charitable acts, even in our kindliness, our our generosity, our good manners, our courtesy with others, it's not for the glory of God that we do these things. So even in the doing of so-called good things, it comes short of the glory of God. And the world says, you're a pessimistic kind of fellow, aren't you? No, I'm, I'm a realist. We, we put the bad news out and say, this is a fact. It's, it's bad news. We're condemned. But the glorious good news is God's Son sent forth by the Father. Where our sin abounds, His grace much more abounds. It superabounds. And we're not just brought back to where we were before we fell in Adam. We're brought back to a better place than even Adam knew. We're not just brought back to innocence. We're brought back to a righteousness. We're in the negative. He doesn't just bring us back to zero and say, I'm going to do away with the negative. He takes us way over on the positive side. He says, you are now given into your account the righteousness of Jesus by faith. It's better than Adam had. The radical commitment that must be made is you must Throw down those things that you have cherished. Is it a cherished sin? Is it a cherished idol? Is it a cherished stamp of approval from your peers? You want to please people so much that you live for that? Throw that down. Come with the empty hands of repentance and faith. That's the coin that God accepts. That's the coin. That's the, the coinage. That's the currency that God We'll put something into. He starts the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus does. And the very first sentence in that Sermon on the Mount is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the gospel of grace is preached in that very first sentence of the Sermon on the Mount. God gives the kingdom to those who have nothing and are poor. Those who mourn over their sins. Those who are meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Amen. Y'all still here? Okay. I'm just about done, and we're going to come to the Lord's table now. Have you made a commitment to Christ? I don't mean did you just nod your head and say, yeah, I believe that, yeah, I believe that. Did you yield? Did you bow down? Did you submit? Did you bow the knee? He is the Lord after all. He's not a poor guy standing over here with his hat in his hand saying, I, would you please let me come and save you? I'll do good things for you if you'll just let me. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one whom angels veil their eyes before him, Isaiah 6. And John 12 tells us that one Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 was Jesus. He's not hoping we'll strike a bargain with him. He is the Lord. Bow your knee. 
Amen. Bow your knee. Bow down. Fall down. Throw down those idols, those cherished sins, those things. You say, well, if a man was stumbling in a field and found a treasure, he wasn't even looking. He was just a stumbler, but he found a treasure. God was so kind. What about this man? He's seeking pearls. What do we make of him? He's, he's a pearl seeker. He's a treasure seeker. Does that mean some are seeking God? Well, the Bible says there's none that seeks after God. This man was seeking something for sure. All are pearl seekers, really. All people are seeking pearls, Matthew Henry said. One is seeking the pearl of riches. He's working his life. He's spending his energy and his time for earthly riches. One is seeking honor among his peers. One is building a legacy. He wants people to think well of him. And when he's gone, he wants people to say nice things about him. And he'll have a good memory and a good lineage, a good image to present to the world. That's the pearl he's after. One is seeking wisdom. He's reading and studying and, and overturning this and delving into that. And, but all those things are plastic pearls. They're faux pearls. Those things are not the pearl of great price. Those things are costume jewelry. So all are seeking things. Yes, they're seeking their own glory. They're seeking comfort in this world. They're seeking to be admired and carried by, by men on their shoulders. But this man found a pearl and he sold everything he had to get it. Proverbs 23, 23 says, buy the truth and sell it not. Buy the truth and sell it not. Whatever it costs you, get the truth and then never sell it, never let go of it. Jesus is this treasure, hidden to most, but praise God, here we are. I once was blind, but now I see. More valuable than all is why the apostles would say, what a blessing, Lord, that you've counted us worthy to be beaten for your name. How can a man say that? Because they had seen a surpassing worth in Jesus that was greater than earthly possessions. They took joyfully the spoiling of their goods, Hebrews says. The time may come for us to make that decision as well, you know. The time may come when our talk, our theological confessions will be put to the test and we will be given opportunity to show did we really believe what we professed. I trust you would let this moment now at the Lord's table strengthen your joy in Christ and your resolve to trust Him, to follow Him, to live for Him, and to suffer for Him if need be. And I trust God will strengthen me in that way as well. Let's pray. Isaac and Tim, brothers, please come now and let's prepare for the Lord's table. And Father, please be honored in the receiving, the hearing of your word in this church. Even poorly done, poorly presented by insufficient, weak messenger, may somehow the Spirit of God be pleased to take the, the powerful, life-changing truths of this book and bring them home to our hearts with power and with transformation 
and with fullness and with, with glory in our soul. And now, Lord, we've, we've read your word and we've sang portions of it in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We have prayed it back to you with confidence. And, we've, and now we will look at this bread that passes us and that we take into our hands and this cup. And we will see us a gospel truth acted out. We will see a Savior crushed and broken that we might be made whole. I pray, Lord, you will lift any fog out of our mind, our eyes that dims our vision of you and that you, Lord Jesus, would be to us more and more lovely and sweet. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.